At this church, we believe truth matters. We live in a world where truth doesn't matter. All that really matters is your subjective feeling. But no, that doesn't matter precisely because truth matters and there is an objective truth. God, the creator, is the fountainhead of all truth. And he's placed all the truth we need for life and godliness in his word. And that's why we take the Bible seriously here. We read it. We teach it. We even sing it. Because truth matters. It's also why we study the scriptures. Because we want to know the depth of all that God has revealed to us and for us. And speaking of, that's why we just finished a verse-by-verse study through the book of the Bible, Colossians. And even though it's a very short letter, it provides us with one of the strongest examples of how Paul himself certainly believed truth matters. He spends most of this little letter refuting error and contending for the truth. If you recall, the Colossian heresy was spreading. False teachers were promoting a false gospel where they were distorting the person and the work of Christ. And so Paul writes to ward off this false teaching of the past. He's trying to set the record straight on Christ and his gospel. And that's what we find in Colossians, all these truth bombs on who Jesus is and what he's really done. For example, when it comes to the person of Christ, in Colossians, we learn that in him, all things were created. And in, thing, in him, all things hold together. He's the image of the invisible God. And that in him, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. No wonder that it says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And getting the person of Christ right really matters. And the same goes for his work. We learned how Jesus reconciled us to God, made peace through the blood of his cross. He granted us redemption, the forgiveness of sins by his grace. I mean, contrary to the legalists in Colossae, we don't, we don't earn this. We don't work for this. But by faith, all of our transgressions are taken out of the way. They're nailed to the cross. We were buried with Christ in baptism. We rise to new life with him as well. We could go on, but in Colossians, we received several hefty doses of truth on the work of Christ. That's something the church still needs because truth still matters. Truth matters. But now listen, that's not all that matters. Don't get the mistaken impression that Paul writes merely to fill our minds or that Christianity is only about checking the right theological boxes. No, truth matters, but do you know what else matters? Living out the truth. You can have all the right doctrine, but it does you no good if you don't actually live it out. And it does others no good. Do you recognize the disastrous consequences of actually having the truth, but then not living it out. Not only does that make you a hypocrite, but it completely undercuts your witness. It's like meeting with a financial planner. He wants to take your money and invest it in the stock market, give you a hefty return. He's, he's found a secret formula to beat the stock market. But then you learn that personally, he's broke because he already lost all of his own money in the stock market. Either His plan is wrong or he's not practiced what he preaches. But either way, when you learn that, would you trust him? Would you invest with him? Would you give him your money? Probably not. Well, with Christianity, we're not demanding people's money. We're 
demanding their souls, so to speak. And the Lord demands that they deny themselves and give their life to Christ to be saved. This salvation comes with the forgiveness of sins. It comes with a new life of righteousness. But if people don't see a new life of righteousness in you, if you're no better than those in the world, if you're even worse, why would anyone invest with you? You can claim to have the truth all you want, but who's going to listen to you? Why should they listen to you? You're denying the truth with your life. This is why we say that truth matters, but so does living out the truth. The apostles knew this, and that's why their letters are not just data dumps of things you must believe. If that's all it was, that'd be one thing, but, but it's not. They go on to thoroughly explore the implications of the truth we must believe. And they place demands on how we must live now in light of having the truth. And so we also saw plenty of that in Colossians. We're told that since you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Consider yourselves dead to immorality. Put aside anger, wrath, malice, abusive speech, slander. Instead, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and so on. You see, being a disciple of Jesus Christ is not just about knowing the truth, although that's certainly required, but it's also about living that truth out, living in light of what is true. And take it a step further, we could say that the biggest arena for living out the truth we have is our relationships. So much of what the New Testament says about how we relate to others has to do with our relationships or how we're to live in Christ. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, and believing in him reconciles us with God, as we read this morning. But it also reconciles us with one another in the church. Salvation should lead to peace and harmony in our human relationships. But what if all of your relationships in life are out of order and they're characterized by division, strife, enmity, slander, hatred, animosity? Something's wrong with that picture. There's a disconnect between all you say you believe about Christ and his power to reconcile and then how you're living. And furthermore, who would listen to you when you say you have this gospel that can reconcile God and man and man to one another? You could have perfect doctrine, but you need more. By faith, you must believe all truth, but then you must live it out, especially in the context of your relationships. That's something we definitely saw in Colossians. But do you want to know where this reality is even more put on display? It's found in the tiny little compendium letter to Colossians known as Philemon. And it is to Philemon we turn our attention today. You can open your Bibles to Philemon chapter 1. There's only one chapter, so it makes it easy. It's just Philemon. And Philemon, if you didn't know, is essentially a companion book to Colossians. Paul wrote both Colossians and Philemon during his first Roman imprisonment wrote them back to back. They're addressed to the same church, the church of Colossae. In fact, it was Philemon who hosted the church of Colossae in his house. 
Paul sent these two letters together with the same carrier on the same trip. And while Philemon is a personal letter, it's not exclusive. You'll see in verse 2 that it was addressed to the whole church as well. The whole church was intended to listen into this personal letter. You can almost call this Second Colossians. But these two letters are not alike. Colossians is doctrine heavy. It's loaded with truth bombs left and right about the person and the work of Christ. Paul's combating the Colossian heresy. Philemon contains no major doctrine at all. It's not a theological treatise. Paul is not contending for the truth in this letter. Rather, it's all about relationships, specifically reconciliation. In Colossians, we learned, you might say, theoretically, that our reconciliation to God and Christ should lead to a reconciliation with others in life. Salvation should lead to transformed relationships that are continually characterized by peace and love and forgiveness. We're all one in Christ now, right? But in Philemon, we see this this is no longer just theoretical. This letter is all about these truths being practiced and lived out before us. As if one might say, like, so you Christians say, like, you're all one in Christ. You say you should love one another as brothers, that you should forgive one another as the Lord forgave you. It's like, okay, well, let's, let's see it then. We're not taught such truths directly in Philemon. But you might say, nowhere else in the New Testament do you see these truths acted out. The demand for truth to be lived out is front and center here in Philemon. When you realize this, the value of Philemon shoots up. The serious Bible student might come to neglect Philemon. It's short. It's one chapter. It's 25 verses. There are no big theological diamonds to mine here. But when you realize the Lord included this letter in the canon of the New Testament to put gospel reconciliation on display, you realize there is something important we need to learn here. Philemon is not going to give you head knowledge, but it will give you heart knowledge. And this is true Christianity. It's the love of Christ lived out and the truth of Christ lived out. Now, of course, if you've never read or studied Philemon before, you have no idea what I'm talking about. This is all perhaps new to you. So why don't we start by giving it a read? And since it's short, yeah, let's read the whole thing. Yes, let's read the whole letter. It should help get you up to speed. So let's do that now. Now, I know for a lot of you, probably myself included, after about five verses, you're going to start tuning it out. So do your best. Catch yourself. Read along. Listen and comprehend this letter to Philemon, verse 1. Let's read the whole thing. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, And to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective 
through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I've come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful, both to you and to me. I've sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me so that on your behalf you might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I'll repay it. Not to mention that you owe me uh, even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time, also prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I'll be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you as you mark Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. How many times can you go to church and say, I can just read a whole book of the Bible. I feel pretty accomplished. Now, when you read Philemon, especially for the first time, it's kind of like walking in late to a movie. You sit down, the movie's already 30 minutes in. You kind of like have no idea what's going on. Who are the main characters? What are their names? What's this about? What's the plot? What's going on here? What are they trying to do? And you're going to have to pay extra close attention to try and piece things together because you walked in late. That's kind of like Philemon. We have a letter here of personal correspondence between the Apostle Paul and this man named Philemon. Clearly, though, some incident has already taken place between them and a third party, this man named Onesimus. But a lot is left out. We get no summary of what exactly happened between these three parties. Thankfully, though, we can kind of hit pause. We can study the letter. And by doing so, we can piece together what is going on. So I want to help you with that. Just for the sake of time, I'm going to give to you a a quick synopsis of what's taking place in the background of this letter. And that'll help you get up to speed As we move forward. So Paul is writing to Philemon. He's a resident of Colossae. This this letter never mentions Colossae. But we do know here Paul is sending Onesimus back to his home in Colossae. And compare that with Colossians chapter 4 verse 9. We learn Onesimus' home was Colossae. So he's going back home to Philemon. It's not hard to put that together. Philemon was a resident too of Colossae. He's not just a resident, though. We learn in verse 2 
the church met in his house. This means Philemon was a man of means, wealthy enough at least to own a large estate to house the, the growing church. And being wealthy in the ancient world, it's not surprising to also learn that Philemon was a slave owner. He owned at least one slave, and that was Onesimus. Just about every wealthy landowner back then in ancient Rome had a household slave. Slavery was simply a, an unquestioned fact of life in ancient Rome. It was built into the very fabric of society. We'll come back to that a little bit later. For now, though, we're able to put together Onesimus was indeed Philemon's slave. That's clear from verse 16. But in this letter, Paul's relating how he has Onesimus, he's sending him back to Philemon. And while he never explicitly says Onesimus ran away, it seems like that's probably what happened. Because Onesimus is no longer in Colossae. Now he's all the way in Rome with Paul. Clearly something happened where he ended up in Rome when he, he shouldn't have. Almost certainly he ran away. Verse 18 implies that he stole from Philemon in the process. That would not be unheard of. You know, slaves in ancient Rome could save money and buy their own freedom. But they also could just run away. And Rome was a popular destination for runaway slaves to get lost in the crowd. That is probably what Onesimus did. Now that right there could have been the end of the story. But it's not because somehow, some way, in Rome, Onesimus encounters the Apostle Paul. Humanly speaking, that sounds like needle in a haystack odds to us. Like, what are the chances he'd run into Paul? But God's providence ensured these two would have a divine encounter. Maybe the most likely reconstruction is that Onesimus encountered Epaphras in Rome. Epaphras, if you recall, he was essentially the founding pastor of the Colossian church. But he had made his way to Rome to get help from Paul. And so there in the crowds did Epaphras see Onesimus and recognize him as, as the slave of his friend Philemon from the Colossian church. And then instead of turning him into the authorities, did he then bring him with him to see Paul in prison? The man Onesimus had no doubt heard spoken of all those times at the church meetings in his master's home. We can only speculate, but we do know for sure that Onesimus encountered Paul and by God's grace, he came to genuine salvation. Onesimus was not a believer before and when he ran away, but hearing the good news of Jesus Christ, who came to save lost sinners, who even came to make slaves co-heirs of eternal life. God changed his heart and Onesimus believed. Paul affirms this down in verse 10. He says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. Spiritually speaking, he's his child in the faith. And later in verse 16, he calls him no longer a slave, but now a beloved brother. And thereafter, Onesimus bore the fruit of his transformation. He remained in Rome and he entered ministry. He started serving all of Paul's needs during his imprisonment, Paul's house arrest while he's waiting trial. Onesimus became one of those helpers to further Paul's gospel ministry. He became a trusted partner, even a friend. Look at verse 11. He mentions how he was formerly useless to you, 
but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person that is sending my very heart and my wish to keep with me so that on your behalf, he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. And Paul came to love Onesimus as a child in the faith. Something's still not right over time, this conviction formed that Onesimus needed to be reconciled with his master Philemon. And yes, by the social construct of the day and the law of the land, Onesimus was still technically Philemon's slave. And Paul's not seeking to overturn all of that in one day. This is not a letter calling for social reform. But he will seek to redefine the slave-master relationship. Just think, even back then, what if instead of slave-master, these two men related as brother-brother? And back then, that's mind-blowing. Even today, that's still mind-blowing. But would that not in itself spend the en- or spell the end of the evils of slavery if they regarded one another as just brother-brother? Paul knows, however, for the sake of conscience, that these two must be reconciled in the Lord, especially if Onesimus is to carry on ministering for the gospel. He has to be reconciled with Philemon, whom he offended and likely robbed. And so now Paul has found the perfect occasion to do so. He's written Colossians, and he's going to send this letter to the Colossian church with Tychicus. He's going to be on his way to all the churches of Asia Minor. And when he gets to Colossae, he'll give the church the letter of Colossians. But Paul resolves to send Onesimus along with Tychicus. Both of them will deliver this letter to the Colossian church. We saw this back in Colossians 4.9. In fact, keep a finger in Philemon and go to Colossians 4. We'll, we'll flip back and forth a few times. But you know, near the conclusion, Colossians 4.9 In fact, we can just read at verse 7, Colossians 4, 7, backwards a little bit. It says, As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances, that he may encourage your hearts. Verse 9, And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who's one of your number, They will inform you about the whole situation here. See how Paul puts Onesimus and Tychicus on the same level. They're both coming back to the church. They're both expected to give a report about Paul's gospel ministry and and speak to the church. But you don't hear this in Colossians. You only hear this in Philemon that Onesimus' business in returning goes a bit deeper. Because Paul chose to pen a second letter, Philemon, to also go with Tychicus. And in fact, it may have been Onesimus himself to hand this letter back to his former master, Philemon. And Paul's writing this letter, though, to broker reconciliation and forgiveness between these two parties. And to reestablish between them a new relationship, that of brother. And their reconciliation was so important that it it takes precedence over Paul's personal desire to keep Onesimus with him. That's what he wanted. He'd far prefer, like, this guy is super helpful for my needs in, in prison ministry. Like, I'd rather just keep him with me for sure. But reconciliation with Philemon was far more important. So off they go. 
These two go carrying these letters. So what's going to happen? Will these two believers now be reconciled? How can that take place in such a culture where slavery was so accepted? But that's what this letter is all about. Gospel of Jesus Christ is a message of reconciliation. Is it not? That through his death and resurrection, Jesus reconciles us to God. In so doing, he puts us in one body, the church. He reconciles us to one another. He gives us a new self, like we learned in Colossians. Renewed in the image of God. If you're still in Colossians, look at Colossians 3.11. Colossians 3.11, he says, A renewal in which there's no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman. But Christ is all and in all. We're all one in Christ. We're equal in Christ as brothers and sisters. That's true. Theoretically. But can this gospel really transform people and actually bring together as brother and sister like, like a Jew and a Greek? Back then, that was crazy. That's like today that the Jew and the, the Palestinian or those who hate one another. You think of the, the, the greatest animosity between people groups. Can this gospel actually, where they're, they're sitting down together, sharing a meal, enjoying fellowship as brothers. Can this gospel actually do that? What about slave and free? Can it reconcile these two? Well, here Paul is faced with a test case. Does the blood of Jesus run deeper than the the social fabric of slavery? There's no use teaching theology and and preaching doctrine. It has no power to actually change lives and bring about such a reconciliation. So this is where the rubber meets the road. There's no deep theological teaching in Philemon. But instead, it's all about theology lived out. Is the gospel enough? Philemon is the shortest of Paul's letters. It looks like a a small little lake next to the vast sea of a book like Romans. But when it comes to practical theology, you find Philemon's waters run very deep. This short letter will, will challenge us on the nature of true reconciliation and fellowship in Christ. How far is this fellowship meant to go? It's really just superficial. Like we come together, we go to church, but then we just go back and live our lives. Are we actually meant to be like one body, one family? How far are we supposed to take that? Today, in many respects, we're just skimming the surface to help you get acquainted with this letter we got a little time left, though, so we're going to now cover the opening verses, verses 1 through 7. These are introductory. It's his introductory greeting. But they really do set the stage for what's to come. We've got no special outline for you, but let's just walk through the first seven verses, see the introduction, and help set the stage for all that's to come in this letter. So go back to Philemon. Let's, let's walk through this introduction. Verse 1. He starts and says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. Verse 1, Paul identifies himself as the author. He's joined by Timothy, his young protege in the faith, 
Philemon would have known both of these men from their time spent at Ephesus. Now, first glance, no big deal. Seems like a typical greeting. But you see how Paul calls himself here? He identifies himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. That's significant because if you look at all the intros of every one of Paul's letters, this is the only time he identifies himself at the beginning as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And Paul was indeed in prison at that moment for Christ. But he very much wanted Philemon to remember that fact. In fact, in this tiny little letter, five times Paul references his imprisonment. He really wants Philemon to remember, like, you know, by the way, I'm really in jail here for the Lord. Why does he keep bringing it up? We get the impression Paul is sending a subliminal message. It's as if he's saying, like, you know, if I can accept being in prison for the sake of the Lord, then then you Philemon can accept what I'm going to ask of you for the sake of the Lord. I mean, if Paul can sacrifice so much for the Lord's sake, Philemon can sacrifice a little pride for the Lord's sake as well. What's also noteworthy is how Paul does not introduce himself here. Contrary to a lot of other letters, he does not call himself Paul an apostle. Makes no mention of his authority. He could have. If he wanted to, he could have pulled rank and just straight up commanded Philemon to reconcile with Onesimus. In fact, he says so in verse 8. He says, therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, he could do it. He mentions he could do it, but he doesn't do it. And this will be a more gracious appeal. And what makes Philemon, I think, so special is here, especially, we get to witness the Apostle Paul, not as Paul the theologian, not as Paul the debater, not as Paul even the apostle. We're just witnessing Paul the friend. He's speaking to Philemon, his friend, about a new mutual friend, Onesimus. And Paul is going to base his appeal here. Why should Philemon listen to him? He's going to base his appeal simply on their, their friendship, their brotherhood in the Lord, not his apostolic authority. This is simply what brothers would do. Verse 1, he says to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, we see Philemon, the specific recipient, just put yourself in Philemon's shoes. Like he's receiving a personal letter from the apostle Paul. And as that's read, I'm sure his heart skipped a beat. As far as we know, Paul only wrote personal letters to Timothy and Titus. So Philemon is is added to that list. That's, That's a big deal. I bet he was nervous. Like, why is Paul writing to me specifically? But he doesn't need to be nervous because Paul affirms that he thinks of Philemon as a beloved brother and fellow worker. And look at that title in verse 1, beloved brother. That's not an accident. That's significant. It has strategic reasons. In Colossians, Paul called Tychicus his beloved brother. Epaphras was beloved. Luke was beloved. And here we see Philemon. He's a beloved brother. And Paul reserves this term for his closest ministry associates. But that being said, what does it say then when Paul calls Onesimus, the slave, his beloved brother? 
Because that's what he does in Colossians 4, 9 and in Philemon verse 16. He does that on purpose to show like you're all on level ground here. You're all just beloved brothers. The slave master hierarchy of the world was going to be superseded by this new brotherhood in the Lord. As he says in verse 16, Philemon is going to need, or he's, he's going to need to, to regard Onesimus no longer as a slave, but as what? A beloved brother. Well, verse 2 continues, he says, And to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. This letter is primarily directed to Philemon, but Paul includes a few other references here to Aphia and Archippus. Most of them infer that these are probably members of Philemon's household. Aphia, his wife, Archippus, their son. It's probably the case. Archippus, if you remember, gets mentioned in the second to last verse in Colossians, where the whole church is told to, to give him courage for the work of the ministry. And from that, we infer Archippus... He was most likely the interim pastor of the Colossian church while Epaphras was with Paul in Rome. But you see what's really interesting in verse 2 and also very strategic is that Paul also addresses this letter to the whole church. Do you see that? Verse 2, he says, and to the church in your house. This letter was going to be read in front of the whole church. Most of this letter is in the second person singular. Paul is talking directly to Philemon. But verse 3, when he says grace to you, it's in the plural. Verse 22 is in the plural. Verse 25, grace be with your spirit. It's in the plural. There are times when he addresses the whole church. You see, this letter was for Philemon, but but it was going to be read before the entire church. Why? Why would Paul do that? Well, you see, this is Paul wisely building accountability into his appeal. Philemon had a decision to make regarding Onesimus. But that decision was not going to take place in a vacuum. The whole church is going to be watching him, how he handles this decision. And by the way, Paul makes it pretty clear, like, there's only one right decision. But you got to make it. It's up to you. But here's the only thing you can do. But it's your choice. And the whole church now is going to watch Philemon and see how he responds. All eyes are on him. That's called accountability. We'll see how he responds later. But verse 3, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a customary greeting from Paul, grace and peace. Grace, the basis of our salvation. Peace, the result of our salvation. Philemon himself has received the grace of God. He's been brought into the peace of Christ. But our theology teaches us that grace received must become grace sent, grace given. Freely you've received, freely give. That includes forgiveness. We're going to see how Paul leans on Philemon to live out the grace and peace he has in the Lord and how he deals with Onesimus. All right, so verses 1 through 3, they form a somewhat standard greeting, but, but already we find notes of Paul's bigger play here. He's up to something with this letter. And now in verses 4 through 7, he's going to address Philemon generally, but, but pay attention because as he greets Philemon and praises Philemon, 
Paul continues to use pregnant words that foreshadow what he's going to ask him to do. Look at verse 4. He says, I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. He goes on to express thankfulness personally for Philemon, encouraging him by the fact that he's, he's praying for him often. These verses are, are very similar to how Paul opens Colossians. But here, this is personal. Verse 5, because I hear of your love and your faith. You know, Paul heard a report of Philemon's character. He already knew Philemon, but in Rome, Epaphras and probably even Onesimus further reported to Paul, like, yeah, Philemon, he's still an outstanding guy. He's still a man of God. And throughout this whole letter, Paul has nothing negative to say about Philemon. There are no rebukes in this letter. There's not even a correction in this letter. He has only positive things to say about Philemon. So he thanks God for his faith in the Lord Jesus, his love shown to all the saints. Philemon really is a man of true faith. He's truly believed in Jesus as his Lord. And as is always the case, though, the quality of our human relationships reflects the quality of our divine relationship. Thankfully, though, Philemon's genuine faith translated into a genuine love for all the saints. He's a man characterized by love for all. And that's something. I mean, think, if your friends at church had to give a report about you to someone else, what would they say? How would you be described? Would your great faith in Christ make the list? Would your love for all the saints be part of your description by your friends at church? I hope so. And together, faith and love will result in a concern for the fellowship. And that's verse 6. He goes on to say, And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you, for Christ's sake. Here Paul adds to his prayer for Philemon. Now this verse is notoriously difficult to translate and, and grasp. It's a mouthful, but see if we can kind of parse through it. He's praying concerning, he says, the fellowship of Philemon's faith. Your translation might say that the sharing of your faith. But don't think evangelism. He's not talking about the the sharing of your faith in the sense of telling unbelievers. This is the sharing of your faith between believers, how we share in the faith. Koinonia is the word. It's talking about shared life among believers, mutual participation in the faith. This is the fellowship or the common life we have in Christ. In fellowship, it's not just spending time together or or sharing an activity together. It's sharing life together in Christ, whereby we mutually identify with one another. This is why in the church, we weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice. Why? Because it's happening to us vis-a-vis Christ. We really are at a deep level. Level one in Christ. So Paul's praying that this fellowship in Philemon's life, this, this mutual participation in the faith, he's praying it would become effective. This means to make strong. The life of Christ we have in salvation is a shared life. It's not an individual life. It's not given to you alone. 
It's not meant for you to experience alone. We often can't help but thinking as individuals. But this salvation life is a fundamentally shared life. And Paul is praying that Philemon would just flourish in this shared life. He says such effective fellowship lived out will happen. He says through the knowledge of every good thing in you for Christ's sake. It's kind of tricky, but, but since this is so similar to how Paul starts Colossians, almost word for word at places, it's probably best to conclude he's, he's really just saying the same thing here to Philemon that he said to the Colossians, only personalized. And what he's saying here, I believe, is akin to what he told the whole church in Colossians 1, 9, and 10. You can look at it if you're still there. Colossians 1, 9, he says in his intro to the whole church, he says, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we've not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, bearing fruit in every good work. The knowledge of the Lord, all that he's done for us should lead us to, to live increasingly transformed lives and fruitful lives. And here Paul is praying for Philemon, especially that, that he would just bear the fruit of rich fellowship. A true fellowship would emerge as he grows in the knowledge of the Lord. And although it's kind of a difficult verse to decipher, I, I still think it's, it's a key to unlocking Paul's trajectory with this letter. He's not said anything yet directly to Philemon about why he's writing. He's made no request. He won't even make a direct request until the end of the letter. But he already wants Philemon to be stretching his horizons on how far common life in Christ should go. I mean, the more you know and appreciate what the Lord did for us in reconciling us to God and to one another, you know, it begs the question, how, how far should your love for God and the church go? How, how committed are you to this thing called the fellowship, the sharing in the faith? What would you say to that yourself? Do you recognize all the Lord's done for you? You were lost. He made you found. You were poor. He made you rich. You were defiled. He made you clean. You were guilty. He made you forgiven. You were condemned. He made you righteous. It's all by his grace. He didn't do that, though, just for you, but for many others. And now the Lord has knit you together with those people. He tells us to live with one another, share this new life together, pursuing a common mission and, and his glory. And so if this is the case, how do you think you should relate to all these other people of the household of the faith? Even the people next to you in, in this room, in your local church, how should you be treating these people for whom Christ died? And think about when they sin against you. When they wrong you, it'll happen. When they offend you, what if they robbed you? How should you deal with them? How should you treat them? Exact revenge or maybe forgive them? And we're just scratching the surface here, but let your own faith be stretched in how far you would go to, to show Christ's love to all the brethren. How far you are committed to the sharing of your faith. Regarding Philemon, we're learning that 
he was willing to take his love for the brethren pretty far. That brings us to verse 7 to, to finish. He says, For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Now, there's nothing pessimistic here. Paul is believing the best about Philemon. He's heard the best. It only gives him joy and comfort to know that he truly is a man who loves the church. He loves the people. He says, the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by him. That term refresh, it, it evokes a special quality. It speaks of giving rest and refreshment to those who need it, like an army after a long march or a shepherd with his sheep after a long journey. Picture those who are weary, but then one comes and, and finally gives them rest, enables them to rest. And that's part of the character of God, mind you, that he's leading his people into an eternal Sabbath rest. And we find that, that Philemon really is emulating the character of God. He's a source of rest, refreshment, and blessing to God's people. You get the impression that Philemon is the type of guy you'd want to be around. Because you know that by your time is up with him, you're going to be blessed. You're going to leave more blessed than how you arrived with Philemon. True love for others in the fellowship. And that is our theology lived out and walking the walk. Love for others it's one of the surest signs that Christ is being formed in you. Lord Jesus said himself, John 13, 35, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And Paul stressed the same thing in Colossians, Colossians 3, 14. He says, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. It's a good thing this quality was found in Philemon because pretty soon Paul is going to put it to the test. I mean, will his love and commitment to the fellowship go so far as to forgive and accept and reconcile, even, even accept as a brother his former slave? That we'll find out next time. For now, though, truly, let's be challenged in your own love. Is it there? Is it real? Is it genuine for the Lord and also for the church, for his people? And if it is real, does it show itself? How does it show? If it, if it is genuine love for the church, for example, it, it will show itself one way or another. How great is your commitment to the fellowship of Christ's body? How far would you go to preserve the fellowship. Look, giving money is easy. Giving time is easy. But you know what's really hard in living out the faith? Giving forgiveness when someone has wronged you and, and truly hurt you. How about overlooking offenses or being patient? Showing love to the unlovely. That's the hard stuff of the faith. But this is the way of the Lord. If you can't walk this way, then all of your theology is, is good for nothing. But I pray that you would prove to be like Philemon. And that your love for the Lord and his people would be willing to go the distance. And we'll see that more next time. Let's pray. 
Our Father, we thank you for this time in your word and this, this little treasure, hidden treasure of Philemon, by which we will be confronted in our own love. We love your word, Lord. We study the word. We have lots of doctrine and theology. We, we take your word seriously. We want to be filled with the knowledge of the truth. We are a Bible church. Even Berean is in our namesake. We love your word, but Lord, we know it's all for naught if we are hearers yet not doers. We must apprehend the truth, truly believe, and let it come out of our hands and our feet and our mouths and be lived out. That includes a love for the brethren. We will see that in Philemon and Paul's call to him. Let us already be challenged in how we relate to one another in this fellowship. You call us to be a body, a family. You say the world will be impacted by our oneness, our unity. That's only going to stem from a Christ-like sacrificial love. I just pray you build this love into our hearts. As we've received Christ's own love, his sacrifice for us to reconcile us to the Father. May we be moved to to show the same love to others. Already, Lord, stretch our horizons and how far we would go to preserve this fellowship. For your name's sake, for your glory, and for our witness, may we all go far in our love for one another. We bless your name. Look forward to great things to come from Philemon. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.